So you said to the, who, who won the prize? Who was it that did it? There you go. So he said, he said, you know, you should give it to the engaged couples. How many of you have ever been in a baseball game and you caught a foul ball? And then somebody says, give it to the kid, right? And you, you know you have to do it. They've shamed you. And you go home without your baseball. Because you know there's a camera on you. I know you have to do it. But how many of you were ever the kid that got the ball given to you? How many of you caught a ball at a baseball game? You did? Anybody else? Another Bible trivia question. Um, who is most upset by the return of the prodigal son? The fatted calf. <laughs> what, did, what did God say to Moses when Moses said, Lord, the children of Israel give me a headache? Here, Moses, take these two tablets. Who was the first person who smoked in the Bible? Rebecca, she lit off her camel. And we could go on and on, right? This is terrible stuff. Yeah. God forgive us for our sins. Um, I'm going to be looking this evening at love that triumphs. And I'm going to be looking from chapter 2, verse 18, to I'll be taking passages till the end of chapter 4. And I'm going to supplement what I say from other passages where other authors like Jude and Peter write similar things, but I think it fleshes us out a little bit for us. Love that triumphs. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at love that assures, and we're going to look at chapter 5. And then uh, Thursday night, I'm going to give a little devotional, and we're going to have Q&A time. And that's usually what we do that, that last night when I'm here anyway, unless they've changed the rules, Art, since in the past. And... and, and I don't know very much, but the things I know, um, my, my brain is like a pickle soaking in the brine of C.S. Lewis. I've been studying him for 52 years and teaching on him for 42, and I've lectured at, at, at on, in universities all across the world on C.S. Lewis. So if you have some questions about Lewis, um, a little bit on evangelism. I've written books on evangelism. Um, and, and spiritual formation and things like that. And if you have questions along those lines, maybe it'll be worthwhile, and maybe some of you will come and have way, way better answers than I would have, and you can also participate by sharing things you've picked up. But we'll do that our last night together, if that's okay. And uh, so now, love that triumphs. And I, because it's a long passage of Scripture, I'm going to le- read one verse, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Father, we know there's a lot, of, a lot of garbage out there and that we can sometimes get sucked into the vortex of these things. Uh, your word warns us about some problems, false prophets, the devil, um, about apostates that can creep into the church unaware, um, and, and also, Father, about the Antichrist, And as we look at these things in the text this evening, in the supplemental text, help us not to in any way experience fear, but instead help us, I pray, to become more confident in you, more excited about your love that triumphs, and more confident in our faith. Again, I pray, Lord, that that what I offer I recognize is, is the work of a very limited person, and yet we know that if we give these things to you, you can breathe in them the breath of life and bring good out of them. And we know that you said to your disciples in the Last Supper, you said to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. We believe that. So take the crumbs that are offered this evening, and again, let your Holy Spirit Take the things that are offered and apply them to each heart that's here. And I pray that every person who gets anything out of our time this evening would sense in it that you love him or her and that you spoke specifically to the heart and that they would sense the affirmation from you. And this is what we want to have happen, I pray, for Christ's sake, for his glory. Amen. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's very interesting. It says, perfect love casts out fear. 
Um, I think that we have things upside down a lot of times. Um, the scriptures say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I've been involved in about eight exorcisms throughout my life, and I am amazed how shocked the evil one is. He's a doofus. He's denied the central reality of the universe that God is God and he is not. And sometimes, it's serious business, but sometimes it's almost funny to see how stupid these demons could be. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. But flee temptation. And sometimes we get it backwards. We think we can manage the temptation and we stay in the circumstances where we're probably destined to fall if we flirt with temptation. Flee temptation, resist the devil. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And trust in that. Perfect love casts out fear. I think Satan traffics in fear. He wants us to be afraid. Instead, fear God and resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So in light of that, as he writes, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who's in the world? In John 2, 18, 1 John 2, 18, we read this, children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. But look at verse 19, it gets kind of spooky. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. These many Antichrists who are in the world have come out of the body of Christ. Um, Jude talks about them as apostates who have crept into the church unaware. Um, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, it says we should test the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In 1 John 3, 7, it says, let no one deceive you. If you have a minute, turn with me back to first, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, if you don't have it, I'll read it to you real quick, but 2 Corinthians 11, 3, and then also 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. 13 through 15 first. It talks about the false prophets, and it says they're deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And then verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. These people can get in among the body of Christ, and how do we resist them, and how do we fortify our minds to spot them, and also how might we develop some things in the church so that we could minimize the possibility of them moving into places of ascendancy. The diabolical nature of these deceivers in the world says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, look at it. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. In other words, we have responsibility to make sure we're not deceived. The one who practices sin is of the devil, it says in verse 8, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. What is sin? How would you define it? I would suggest to you sin simply is a man or woman trying to play God of his or her own life. I think most of the definitions of sin in the scriptures run along that line. You look at Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Greek word for sin is hamartia. If you study theology and you study the doctrine of salvation, you study soteriology. If you study the doctrine of sin, you study homardiology. It comes from that Greek word. It was actually an archer's term. So the archer would take the arrow, knock it in the bow, shoot it at the target, and if the target missed the mark, it was called a homartia, a sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What was it that we were doing? We were trying to play God of our own life, and all of us fell short of the, of the mark. We assumed a position we weren't qualified for. In 1 John 3, 7, it also gives us, excuse me, um, uh, uh, 3, 4, 3, 4, it also gives us a definition of sin. 
Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Doesn't sound like it's playing God of our own life. How does that, how does that work? The Greek word for sin is anamos. Namos is a Greek word for law. If you put the alpha negation in front of it, it becomes lawless, without law. It's not antinomian. I'm not fighting against God's law. I've completely rejected God's law in my life, and I'm living a life as if I'm God, and I'm anarchistic. By the way, um, anarchists make bad community people. People living in sin, uh, people who have sought to be God of their own life, will be in conflict with other people trying to be God of their lives as well. Uh, sin is not only anarchistic, it's self-referential, it's self-serving. In Genesis 3, when Satan tempts Eve, he says, in the day you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Sin compounded then is man playing God over other people's lives. We're moving towards what is the spirit of the Antichrist? It's somebody who's self-referential and somebody who also tries to play strong over somebody else. Uh, the characteristics, um, as they're recorded in Scripture, are really telling, and it will help us understand this a little better. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. And Jude is written, who's the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, it's written to ferret out the fact that these apostates have come into the church unaware. I felt the necessity, he says in verse 3, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Move down to verse 8. These men defile the flesh, they reject authority, they revile unjust, uh, angelic majesties. Look at verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand. They can speak authoritatively about something, but they really don't know what they're talking about. Have you ever heard that before? I've seen it among Christians as well. You have to be careful. Sometimes a Christian will be talking about something and you realize they're talking about something they've never actually read. They don't actually know about I'll tell you where I saw a lot of it. Uh, discussions about postmodernism. People will begin to say, well, the postmodernists are this or that. And then I'll say, well, where did you read about that? And they haven't read anything. They just heard from their subculture somebody trashing postmodernism. There's a lot of bad stuff in postmodernism. But not everything in postmodernism is bad. But you'll get a person who will speak authoritatively about it and revile things they don't understand. It's always good for us to maintain the humility of saying to somebody, well, you know, I, I haven't really read much about that. I don't really know. Tell me what you know. We can learn from each other. That book list that they've got back there, those aren't all the books I've read. Those are the books I traffic in. Those are the books that have shaped my thinking. And when you look at the list, you'll say, wow, this is missing, this is missing, this is missing. Jerry really is the pea brain he says he is. <laughs> There's a lot we don't know about, and so we just own that. But this is characteristic of these people who sneak into the church and they revile things they don't understand. They may even revile spiritual things. They're not born again. They don't have the life of Christ in them. And they could be speaking about these kinds of things inappropriately. These men, verse 12, are hidden reefs. What happens in hidden reefs? You get shipwrecked on them. They're caring for themselves. They're clouds without water. In an agrarian culture where maybe you didn't have um, uh, good water systems, clouds without water, that's tragic for the crops. And they're autumn trees without fruit. Now we're beginning to see they look good, but there's no real substance. And it says in verse 13, they're wandering stars. The word for a wandering star in Greek is a planetes. We get the word planet from them. They didn't follow any particular order. We've got something very similar over in 2 Peter chapter 2. And it talks about false teachers and false prophets who are among you. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, it says in verse 2. 
Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Remember, sin is man playing God of his own life, so they're self-referential. That means you matter if you matter to them for something they can use you for. You don't matter to them because they're giving their life in service for you. This is characteristic. Verse 10, they are those who indulge the flesh. They despise authority. They're daring. They're self-willed. Verse 12, these are like unreasoning animals, reviling where they have no knowledge. Peter uses almost the exact same words that Jude used. And then he says in verse 13, they're reveling in their deceptions. They're trying to win one over on you. And then verse 14, their eyes are full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. self Reference, self-advantage, and taking advantage of other people. Uh, I think one of the best ways we could protect ourselves from this is if you're in a church position and you're on a board, you, you could maybe say, okay, we've got these, we've got these a, 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 uh, attributes for leadership that are listed in Titus and Timothy. What if you made one of the expectations, because those aren't exhaustive lists, those qualities for leaders. What if you made the expectation that a person who's on your board at your church would be a person who's actually led another person to Christ and discipled that person so that that person could go lead another person to Christ? Uh, Dawson Trotman said that he thought in a sermon he wrote called Born to Reproduce, that just as a person is seen to be physiologically mature when they could reproduce, a reproducer, a person should be seen to be spiritually mature when they could reproduce a reproducer. These apostates are autumn trees without fruit. Now, if you go to your board and you get obnoxious about this, and you start telling them, well, we need to get rid of all our board members that haven't led somebody to Christ and decide, well, no, no, that's terrible. Maybe nobody ever mentored them. Don't make the worst assumption about these people that might be at your church. Uh, a friend of mine, Mark Lewis, he's the theater professor at Wheaton College. He's probably my closest friend at Wheaton. And he says sometimes, where does your mind go? What do you fill in what you don't know with? So you know something about somebody, but you don't know everything about them. Do you rush to judgment and assume that this person is all that way? You don't want to do that. Uh, we, we live in a culture where we're fed some of this stuff. On the nightly news, what do you get? You get the worst examples of different classes of people. Uh, if, 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 if it's a common person who's living their life best they might, it doesn't make the news. We put the exception in the news. You put the businessman who's cheated his people. You put the person who murdered somebody. You put the politician who did a bad thing. You put the pastor who went off the deep end in there. And we can begin to make the assumption that everybody in that class is like that. And we're filling in what we don't know with information we have no right to do. But nevertheless, one of the ways you can protect your church from having people getting into positions that they shouldn't be in because they're not reproducing reproducers is start to develop this standard. And if you're developing it in a harsh way by judging your current leaders, you're probably part of the problem. There's ways to nurture people into good behavior. And, and C.S. Lewis made this observation. The worst of bad men, he thought, were religious bad men. The quicker I might be willing to die for my faith, maybe the quicker I'd be willing to kill for my faith or pain of thus saith the Lord across my own opinions. So you're not disagreeing with me now. You're disagreeing with God. And all kinds of problems could come. If you see changes that need to happen in your church or something like that, Go serve in that area. Be a change agent that way. Don't trash people in your church. But there's a good way that you could begin to say, we should probably be thinking about this. And if a person hasn't led somebody to Christ and discipled them, and they're in a position of leadership, if you've led somebody to Christ and discipled them, ask them to go with you when you go out sharing Christ with somebody. Build them up that way and encourage them along those lines. But I think that this is an important way we can take care of some of the stuff that's here. Um, okay, so then we go on to, uh, I want to go back and reconsider that passage in Dante. Remember when I told you there was the, 
the, uh, between the Vita Nuova and the Divine Comedy, he wrote the, um, he wrote the Convivo and the Demonarchia. And I cited that passage from the Demonarchia, that function precedes essence. That God assigned to me purposes and then gave me the essence I needed to fulfill that purpose. And he gave me different essence than he gave somebody else. So I celebrate what he gave you. We don't say, I wish I was like somebody else. We don't say, I'm glad I'm not like somebody else. We say, Lord, help me to understand why you made me the way you did so that I can lean into the purposes you've assigned to me and gifted me to do. And, and I think this is important, but C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams, who was another member of the Inklings, this literary group that included J.R.R. Tolkien, Neville Coghill, and so many others, Charles Williams wrote a series of Arthurian poems about the legend of King Arthur. And these poems are very, very um, thick. And when Williams died suddenly, Lewis felt he wanted to fulfill an obligation to his dear friend Charles Williams. And he wanted to write a literary criticism about those poems. It was a, a, a great thing. And the book is called The Arthurian Torso. Most people never read it, but it's really a very good book. And Lewis says that Williams took this idea that function precedes essence, and he makes this observation, the fall was a reversal in knowledge. And it said, essence precedes function. So I'm going to create for myself my function, rather than try and discern what God is calling me to. And not only am I going to create it for myself, I am going to make sure that I take advantage of other people. I am going to make sure that I um, uh, use these things for my own gain, not for kingdom purposes. So in that understanding, Charles Williams has King Arthur standing in Camelot on the parapet, looking out over the, the kingdom, and King Arthur makes this observation. Does the king exist for the kingdom, or does the kingdom exists for the king. Do you see the reversal? And so consequently, there is the, the alteration in knowledge. There's the fall. That's self-referential, not service-oriented. Lewis picks up on it then too when he writes the Narnian Chronicles. You guys all remember the white witch who makes it always winter and never Christmas? Well, we encounter her later, as Lewis wrote the books, in The Magician's Nephew. She was the queen of charm, and her name was Jadis. You know what Jadis means in Turkish? Witch. You know what Aslan means in Turkish? Lion. So there you go. This is real creative. <laughs> so Jadis was queen of charm, and she's so evil that her whole kingdom has mounted up in civil war against her. And by magical arts, she has learned how to say the deplorable word. And the deplorable word gives her the power to destroy everybody else and save only herself. And at that moment, she becomes anti-Oslan, or we could say anti-Christ. When Jesus came, he came to destroy the works of the devil because he wants to stop people being self-referential and he wants them to be kingdom-referential. You see, all through these three chapters of, of 1 John, he's saying, if you really have encountered God, you're going to want to love your brother. If you've really encountered God, you're going to want to follow him in his work in the world. And these things become very important. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that he is coming into the world and now already is in the world. What, what, what's the deal? Confessing Christ is from God. Because God sent Jesus into the world to what? Save lost humanity. And consequently, those who are of the spirit of the Antichrist deny that work because they don't see it as important, and then they deny the repercussions of that work, people being touched by the life of Christ and wanting to go out and serve others in Christ's uh, place. They deny the love that lays down its life for others, and they are too self-referential for that. So consequently, these 
know nothing of the high courtesy of heaven. Uh, there, there, years ago, I was in, in did you, have you guys ever done Book of the Month Club? I remember years ago I did it, and when I joined it, they sent me a free book. It wasn't a very big one. And, and, and it was called Common Courtesy, Miss Manners Solves a Problem that Baffled Mr. Jefferson. Did any of you ever read Miss Manners in the newspapers? She was the etiquette columnist. And I used to love reading her because I thought so much stuff that came through, I don't know if she was a believer or not, but there was so much theological uh, import in what she wrote. And she was invited to come to Harvard and give a lecture on etiquette at Harvard University. She was the first person to give a lecture on etiquette there since Cotton Mather did in the 1600s. Cotton Mather was a New England pastor. And so the lecture she gave was the one I got from the Book of the Month Club. Miss Man Common courtesy, Miss Manners solves the problem that baffled Mr. Jefferson. What was it about? Well, when America became a country, Thomas Jefferson realized we need to think through the issue of etiquette. In Europe, before America started, this egalitarian society, in Europe it was always you knew where you were in the pecking order. If you were of royal descent, then everybody treated you well, and you treated everybody else in a servile way. If you were lower, you knew that you were low on the pecking order. So how do we find out how to do etiquette in egalitarian society? And what Jefferson saw people started to do was say, well, you're no better than I am. And everybody was treating each other badly. And Jefferson was trying to figure it out. And Miss Manor says, I'm going to solve the problem. She doesn't. All she does is say, we're not going to have etiquette by virtue of where you are in the birth order. And we found other ways to try and figure out how to treat one another. So my, my wife is beautiful. And some people in here know her. She's drop-dead gorgeous, and I was only able to marry her because she's very nearsighted. <laughs> and the darkest day of our marriage was when she had LASIK surgery. It was 20 years in the marriage. There was nothing she could do about it by then. But nevertheless, she's very beautiful. And over the years, every once in a while, she would get pulled over because she was putting the pedal to the metal. And there were times when the policeman would say, um... Claudia Root, is there a Mr. Root? She got asked out to lunch once by a cop who had pulled her over. She never got tickets. You know what happens when the bald, fat guy with the white beard and thick glasses gets pulled over? He gets a ticket. I got one once for doing 31 and a 30. I drive more carefully than my wife because I know what's at risk. Some people say, well, I'm of an ethnic minority, and therefore I'm often treated badly. I say, I'm not of an ethnic minority, but I'm a bald, fat, old guy, and I get treated badly. And so Miss Manners says, well, some people are treated better by virtue of appearance. Some people are treated better by virtue of their athletic skill. I have a friend who has a Super Bowl ring. He was the starting tight end for the San Francisco 49ers in the Joe Montana era. Whenever he gets pulled over, he looks, which side's the policeman coming? Reaches into his pocket, pulls out that Super Bowl ring, and when they ask him for his ticket, he shows it like this with all the bling, and they go, is that a Super Bowl ring? Take his license. Gee, Mr. Heller, which Super Bowl were you in? Well, I played with Joe Montana. Really? What was Jerry Rice like? Oh, he's a prince of a guy. And that Ronnie Lott, you would have loved him. And the cop says to him, Gee, Mr. Heller, could I get your autograph? It's for my son, you see. And he never gets a ticket. You know what the ha happens to the guy who's old and fat and doesn't look like he's ever even walked straight all of his life? He gets a ticket. Uh, we get it sometimes by virtue of education. We get it sometimes by virtue of wealth. And all Miss Manners did was show all the ways we've substituted Ethics or etiquette. There's only one way you can solve the problem. Only one that, I, that I've, I've sensed. It's the high courtesy of heaven. When on the cross, Jesus said, I offer my life for you. My life for you. The spirit of the Antichrist doesn't offer its life for anybody. 
But Christ offered his life for us. And if we are affected by that, then it seems that we want to walk that way. Scripture even says it, that we should walk as he walked. The Son appeared, the Son of God, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That somehow there would be transformation. We would learn to love the God who loves us, because this is the love that triumphs, and we would learn to love others with the high courtesy. That means trying to pray for those that we know that don't know Christ. Try to nurture them towards faith. Try to encourage the ones that do know Christ that they would grow in their faith, and so on. Love that triumphs also multiplies the workers. Look at 1 John 2, 24. As for you, let that abide in you what you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. We'll get in step with the Son and Father's purposes in the world. Wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 that I think gives us some insight on this. I think this is a, a very important passage for anybody that wants to do theology and particularly Christology should become familiar with. It's called the kenosis passage. Kenosis is a word, it was a military term. When a person would go into battle, they would lay aside their insignias of rank because if they were the captain or something like that, everybody would try and kill the leader so that the troops would scatter. If you guys saw that movie, The Patriot, remember when, uh, um, uh, who was the main guy? Mel Gibson says to his sons, just shoot the officers. Well, it's that kind of idea. So the laying aside of the insignia of rank. And, and so it says in this passage, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that's the word, emptied, laying aside the insignias of rank, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The Antichrist spirit doesn't humble itself. It exalts itself, and it exalts itself over others, and it uses others. But he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's a high courtesy. I offer my life for you. Therefore also God highly exalted him, him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven, those who are on earth and under the earth, and so on. This idea of the kenosis, it says there that he emptied himself. It was a voluntary surrender on Christ's part of at least two things. The outward manifestation of his glory. He turned down the dimmer switch on his glory when he became a man. Turned it up briefly at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, turned it back down again. But he also voluntarily surrendered the independent use of his divine attributes. That's why he could sometimes say in, in his uh, in days of his incarnation, not even the Son of Man knows, because the Father didn't give him permission to invoke the divine attribute or the divine privilege at that particular moment. That's why he would constantly say, all the Father has told me to do that I have done. All the Father has told me to say that I have said. If you go to John's Gospel, 18 times from the time he meets with uh, Nicodemus to the end of that Gospel, 18 times he makes comments like that. All the Father told me to do that I have done. All the Father told me to say that I have said. So he not only becomes the person who can forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to God, but he becomes the perfect example of the will surrendered to the Father. John says if we, if we have understood the love of God, we'll be in union with the Father and the Son. So the Father has told the Son what to do, and the Son in the upper room discourse told his disciples what to do. And he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And he sends us in a way that is very contrary to anything that's self-referential like the Antichrist. It's a way sent into the world to increase his work in the world. Um, I, I like words. And I, I fell in love with the word, the first, the first word I ever fell in love with. Mrs. Reinhardt, uh, first grade class, we were in a reading group, 
And she'd go through vocabulary cards. And I, I remember the word swish. I, I started liking that word before it was even popularized by a clean shot in basketball. Pokey was another word at that time. And ever since that time in my life, I started liking certain words. I, 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 I liked the, I, I can see what the people were wearing when I learned the words um, subtle or perplexed or ostentatious, which is a word way too ostentatious for my vocabulary. But there's a word that I think helps us understand what I'm saying right now. And it's a word I learned in third grade. I went to this elementary school. It's called State Street Elementary School. And do you know where it is? In, in Huntington Park? Yes. Who are your parents? Who? We have to talk. Yeah. I had to stand out in the hall a lot of times when I was there, but nevertheless. So, so it cost 32 cents to eat in the cafeteria. For us, that was prohibitive. My mother always sent us to school with a, a sandwich in the brown bag, a couple cookies, and a piece of fruit. But I would see those kids go into the cafeteria, and I'd say, what do they know that I don't know? What experience are they having in there? And I longed to go into the cafeteria. And one day, to my complete surprise, my mother handed me 32 cents and said, you can eat in the cafeteria today. I put it in my pocket. I was worried because I was a pretty kinetic little kid. And I thought out at recess or something, I might have it come out of my pocket and lose it. So I was always grabbing my pants pocket to make sure it was still there. Now I go into the cafeteria, and a new thing hit me. I wouldn't have described it this way, but this is exactly how I thought at that time. Being unfamiliar with the sociological protocols of elementary school cafeteria life, would I do something that was stupid and all the other kids would make fun of me? So I watched with intensity the girl in front of me in line. And she gave her 32 cents to the woman at the register. I did the same. She grabbed her tray and her cutlery. I did as she did. And then she went to that chrome roll bar counter. Remember that thing? And she came to the first item on the menu. It was string beans. I hate string beans. <laughs> I hate them still. And apparently this girl didn't like them too because she used a word I'd never heard before. She said, I'll have a small portion of those, please. I'd never heard the word portion before. And the cafeteria lady, do you remember her? She's kind of heavy set with gray hair and a hairnet and a white outfit with an apron that had smudge marks all over it. She was the ubiquitous cafeteria lady who worked in every elementary school cafeteria in the world. She took this spoon and had big holes in it so the juices could go through, dug down into a pot, had this little tiny bowl, and gave the girl three string beans. I thought I'd try it. I'll have a small portion of those too, please. She did the same thing for me. I went on down the line, and I put the different things on my tray, and what was at the end? Dessert. And I saw the most economically cut pieces of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life, and I wondered if the word might have other applications. So I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a large portion of that, please. And she cut me the biggest piece of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life, and I thought, that's a good word. <laughs> The Bible says in Psalm 73, 25 and so on, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He loves us. He brings us to himself that we might be fulfilled in him. This is love that triumphs, and it's way better. It's way better than the anarchist self-referentialism. But that love gets bigger as we, like Christ, respond to the word of Christ and go do what he wants us to do in the world. And this is the love that triumphs. I want to end this, this evening, by taking you to the book of Job. And I want to look at this book, and I want you to see some things in this book that just totally blow me away. And it, it, I think it emphasizes the very things we've been talking about. So if you go to the book of Job, 
you'll basically, uh, uh, I, most of us know chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 42, right? But it's all that other stuff in the middle that we kind of get caught up in. But I want to suggest to you that Job, he's a great man. Scriptures make it absolutely clear. He was the greatest man in the East. He was a righteous man. And my guess is he was made righteous the way that Abraham was made righteous. He believed in God and God uh, uh, reckoned, reckoned him as righteous. He was a very wealthy man. Job had um, 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. I think he was an Edomite, and I think he was the second king of the Edomites, the Jobab that's mentioned in the, in the genealogies. I can't prove it, but there's some strong indicators. Esau, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau's son was a guy named Eliphaz. Teman was a place in Edom. Uz was a place in Edom. And one of the friends of Job who comes to him is Eliphaz the Temanite. And not only that, the second king of the Edomites was a man named Jobab. And I can't help but wonder if maybe this was the guy. But nevertheless, 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. This is Edom, if you've been there, it's, it's deserty. And the camels were the trucking system for the desert if you wanted to move cargo and supplies. He had... Uh, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. And it tells us at the beginning that he was a priest to his family. It's amazing. Seven sons and three daughters. They would feast at the son's house in the cycle of a week. And at the end of the week, he would pray for them, sacrifice for them in case any of them had maybe said something that they shouldn't have said or blasphemed God. And he was a priest to his kids. Well, you know the story. He ends up losing everything in chapters 2 and 3. Matter of fact, um, Satan comes before God. God says, where have you been? He says, roaming about in the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? I don't know about you, but I don't like that passage. You get it also in Luke 22, 31 and 32, where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has to sift you like wheat, and I prayed for you. I don't like that. I wish Jesus would have said, Satan has to sift you like wheat, and I told him to keep his mitts off of you. But I prayed for you that when you're restored, you'll be able to restore your brothers also. I don't know of two better verses to tell me what the whole theme of Job is all about. He loses everything. Satan says, yes, you know, you, he's got everything. He built a fence around him. He only loves you for what you give him because nobody loves you for who you are. Does that sound a little like Satan's projecting his own values on God? Later when he gives him boils from head to toe, God had said, did you consider my servant Job? You incited me against him and, and he stayed true. He didn't curse me. And, and Satan says, yeah, skin for skin. Nobody, he didn't really care about his family and stuff. He just cares about himself. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. And God says, you can touch him, but you can't take his life. And each time he suffers, one time he worshiped, and one time his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? And he said, should we accept good from God and not adversity also? And he didn't sin. Three friends show up. I'm convinced they weren't the only ones who showed up because at the end of the book, we've got uh, Elihu, the son of Berkel, the Buzzite. Would you name your kid that? <laughs> and the three friends show up. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. And they sit there and grieve with Job for a week. And then all of a sudden, Job speaks and he bemoans the day of his birth. And he says, I wish I had gone from womb to tomb. And then Eliphaz speaks. Now, there are three cycles of discourse. And if you carefully go through them, the three friends keep saying the same thing over and over. They don't listen to Job. They don't really respond to Job. They project on Job. And the three things they say are a true charge, but it becomes falsified by its application. They say all sin. That's true. But they say, you, Job, because you're suffering, you must be a dirty, rotten sinner. That was false. The Bible said he was a righteous man. Number two, sin equals trouble. That's true. But then they say, you've got trouble, so clearly you're a sinner. 
Well, trouble doesn't always mean sin. If it did, then Jesus was the worst sinner in the world because he bore the sins of the world on his shoulders. Third, they say, if you confess, God will forgive you of your sin. That's true. But you're still suffering, so clearly you haven't confessed. You must have secret sins someplace. As a matter of fact, they start inventing them. They said, you must have seen orphans, and when nobody was looking, you just broke their arms. Or you saw people in your caravan, and they were dying of thirst, and you had plenty of water, and you didn't give them anything. And you go through and see, the three friends don't change. They just get louder in each cycle of discourses. Have you ever been in a country where you don't know the language? What do you do? You just talk louder and slower. And these friends, I, I've gone through in all my Bibles, I mark those same three things. Job, on the other hand, he's starting to change. He probably had a theology similar to the friends, but his experience has awakened him to see things more robustly. Job, Job says, I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through. He has some, homo, some high moments. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Great trust even in the midst of adversity. Job 19, I know my Redeemer lives and he will take his stand upon the earth. The word that he uses for earth is a very unusual word. It's not the word ha'aretz, Genesis 1.1. Breshith bara Elohim eth ha'shemayim wa'eth ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. Job doesn't use it. He doesn't use the word adam, from which we get the name Adam. It's tillable, fertile soil. He doesn't use that. It's a pretty common word. He uses the word apar. What does apar mean? An ash heap. Where was Job? On the ash heap. I know my Redeemer lives, and he will take his stand upon the earth. He will come where I am. That's very non-antichrist. That is very Christ-like. He enters. Remember the God who pursues Sunday morning. Finally, the friends, they're fed up with Job, and he has these different soliloquies. He bemoans again the day of his birth. He feels a little sorry for himself in one of them. He wonders where wisdom could be found. We have a place to mine gold. We have a place for silver. We have a place to search for jewels. Where could we find wisdom to help us understand the complexities of this life? And one of the soliloquies, he asserts his integrity, but finally he's done, and then all of a sudden, Elihu, the son of Berkel, the Buzzite, speaks. I think he was sitting there the whole time because he recounts the arguments of the friends and he recounts Job's argument. He's heard. He listened. And then he makes some assertions. And he says, Job, I think the whole picture is bigger than you've understood. And he's a little bit like John the Baptist, the forerunner of the speeches of God. And then God shows up. And he gives two comments. The first speech that God gives, both, both, both speeches, he starts them out. Job, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you tell me. In other words, Job, put your pants on. I'm going to ask you some questions. And so God sits down in the student's seat, and he lets Job be the instructor. And he raises his hand. Job, where were you when I created the universe? I, I don't remember the universe consulting firm being around at that time. And he says, Job, can you, do you, have you? Job, do you speak to the, to the rain and cause it to rain? Do you take care of the lion's young in the wilderness? Do you take care of the ostrich's egg when it abandons its egg in the sand? Job, do you understand the flight of the eagle? Job, can you keep Pallades in its courses in the sky? Job, can you, have you, do you? And it goes on like that. And all of a sudden, when God's finished, Job goes, I'm a pea brain. And God says, yeah, we're kind of tracking on the same page now. And then God says to him, and this is the main point of the whole book of Job. It's the kind of thing that John's writing about. He says to him in his second speech, Job, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment that you might be justified? Will you be so self-referential you'll annul my judgment? Okay, let me ask you a question. Job, if you think you can do it better, 
If you will be so self-referential, if you will be anti-Christ-like, remember those guys at the foot of the cross, what they say? If you're the son of man, come down from the cross and save yourself. We understand self-saving because we're self-referential. But Jesus stayed on the cross because he didn't come to save himself. He came to save lost humanity. And he says, Job, let's let you play God of the universe and let's see what the universe looks like. Let's see if what you do would annul my judgment that you might be justified. And at that particular moment, Job says, God says to Job, Job, if you were God of the universe, you'd take the, the wicked of the world and you'd crush them. You'd wipe them out. And if you took the proud of this world, you, you, you would crush them. And I say to you, Job, all right, your own right hand can save you. And the text goes into silence. And then he starts talking about Leviathan and behemoth. He says, forget the universe. You can't even control a crocodile and a hippopotamus. But at that moment when he says, Job, I say to you, your own right hand can save you. He's saying, Job, that's Antichrist-like. And in the silence, we get the picture. You, Job, would justify yourself at the world's expense. You just said the deplorable word. But I seek to justify the willing of this world at my expense. And that's the Christ-like way. And Job gets the picture. And God restores Job. And when he restores him, how does he restore him? Job 42.10. He restores him twofold when he does what? When he prays for his friends. And the interesting thing is, he was a priest to his family. Through the suffering, he becomes extended in his franchise. And he learns the Christ-like way, and he's restored when he prays even for the people who hurt him. Oh, by the way, look at the twofold restoration. He had 7,000 sheep. How many sheep does he get? 14,000. He had 3,000 camels. How many camels does he get? 6,000. He had 500 yoke of oxen. How many does he get? He had 500 donkeys. How many does he get? He had seven sons and three daughters. How many does he get? Seven and three. Why? Why doesn't he get twofold? Because the original seven and three didn't cease to exist just because they died, and he would be restored to them. God's looking at the big picture, and the big picture is a redemptive picture. The big picture is a picture where Christ comes incarnate, and he meets us at the place even of our confusion to minister grace to us. And he woos us to himself with this love that triumphs over the antichrist attitude that we can sometimes have, and he deploys us into that world that we might make a difference for him. Let's pray. Father, we're rookies at this. There's just so much we don't know and understand. But where all of a sudden the clarities come, help us to be so deeply moved by it, moved by it that it would move us to change, move us to want to become more like your son. And where we're not like your son, help us not to be dissuaded or disappointed. Help us instead, like Job, who was a priest to his family and now becomes a priest to even the people who hurt him. Help us to go into the world like your son and minister grace even to the people who hurt us. And minister grace in a hurting world that people might see exemplified in our life what we've been able to find in your son. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory.